0: Welcome to Dig Life
1: Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Unless you are hiding under a rock, you've seen the headlines on inflation everywhere this past week. In the United States, inflation hit a whopping 9.1% in the 12 months to June this year. It's the highest rate of increase in the consumer price index since 1981. Gasoline surged nearly 60%, groceries some 12%, new autos 11.4%, shelter 5.6%. It's stomach churning. We're going to take a closer look at why we are witnessing this white hot inflation today with Nathan Lewis. He's an internationally renowned expert on money and taxation, who is out with a new book, Inflation. Joining Nathan is Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group. In the words of the publisher's overview, Nathan's book explains what's behind the worst inflationary storm in more than 40 years, one that is dominating the headlines and shaking Americans by their pocketbooks. The cost-of-living explosion since the COVID pandemic has raised alarm bells about a possible return of a 1970s-style great inflation. Some observers even fear a descent into the kind of Weimar-style hyperinflation that has torn apart so many nations. Is this true? If so, what should be done? How should we prepare for the future? Our interview will also look at interest rates and global currencies, even taking a look at the soaring dollar or the rise in the dollar, whichever way you want to look at it, and the fall or plunge in the euro, Whichever way you want to look at it. Central banks became very aggressive.
2: In response to COVID, they essentially created a whole lot of money out of nothing. Out of thin air. bought a whole lot of government bonds, essentially uh, indirectly financing very large deficits. And, it, and and we saw key indicators of inflation react to this. Dick
1: Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group has followed this inflation monster for many years, and was early in predicting the terrible inflation we have with us today. He'll tell us where he sees it headed and explain where we are at today as investors and consumers look for signs of the peak.
3: Well, no, I, I fully agree with the concept that if inflation continues, it destroys the society, it destroys uh, much the economy, it destroys much more than simply, uh, you know, the financial system. So I think it's bad. I think it's wrong. And I think that uh, I, I believe the Milton uh, Friedman view that uh, if you grow the uh, money supply in line with the growth in the economy and the population, uh, you, you can avoid inflation. But I don't see any uh, government uh, which has the courage to to do that. We keep digging for the secrets and stories
0: of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people.
1: I hope you're all well, and I know that's tough with the inflation in our midst. Inflation is our topic with guests Nathan Lewis, an internationally renowned expert on money and taxation, who is the co-author on a new book titled Inflation. And he'll be joined by another expert, this time on banking, the markets, as well as on inflation. He's Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group, who many of you will also know from his weekly spot on the top-rated weekly podcast, Odeon Capital Conversations, with Matt van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group, and also with yours truly here. We'll get to our interviews about inflation with Nathan and Dick in a wee moment. But first, it's time for our weekly segment of Future Shock 2.0 with Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, welcome back to Future Shock 2.0. College grads, it's that time of year. What are they all up to?
0: John, this is fascinating and thanks for having me back. We've talked about this before and The whole debate about whether you need a college degree uh, or how much education that you need for jobs. And I'm the first, and I know you'll agree with this, uh, that everyone needs to have more education. A high school diploma isn't enough. However, uh, what's going on in the workplace is, is really interesting. And this literally right before we went on the air came across my, uh, my desktop. So a new study by resume builder found that 34% of recent college grads who are employed are working at jobs that don't have education requirements beyond the high school diploma think about that wow a third you know spending you know four years in school tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars and one-third of them are working with jobs that don't have education requirements beyond the high school diploma now I think everybody would agree in the long run, many of those jobs are probably going to go away, but currently that's where the status is. Some of the other findings they had that 84% of the recent grads say finding a job was very or somewhat difficult, which is extraordinary considering where the market is that we have a, you know, 4 million job openings that we actually have people. So it should be pretty, pretty easy to get a job if you're a recent college grad. Uh, one in five recent grads are working at jobs that are unrelated to their major. And 40% said that they're seeking employment. Have They have actually lowered their salary expectations. Um, the, the report goes on and on, but I, I think it's a, a, a fascinating trend. Uh, one reason I believe that college grads are having a problem, and I believe we've talked about this in another episode, or we should in the future, uh, something I talk about all all the time, is companies don't know how to hire young people. Their hiring processes are still based from the 70s, 80s, 90s, even the 2000s. Um, recent grads, 96% of all young people under the age of 30 by Pew Research own a mobile phone. That's the only, sometimes the only connection that they have. And many companies are putting their posting their jobs up there, but you can't get to them. You can't apply for a job on a mobile phone when it's an application that was designed in 1990.
1: Yeah, great point. We'll have more from Ira Wolf next week. Ira Wolf is a workforce trends expert and top five global thought leader on the future of work and HR. And he's host of the popular Geeks, Geezers and Googleization podcast. Okay, the news on inflation was once again grim this past week as prices showed an upward trend in June and as the inflation number hit a jaw-dropping 9.1%. Sure, you may have run for the Pepto-Bismal or something even stronger. Stay calm. But we got to ask this question. What exactly is causing all of this inflation? Are you scratching your head? There are theories, reports, even conspiracies and news too on what are the driving forces on this inflation. Everything is all over the financial map. Our guests are Nathan Lewis, the internationally renowned expert on money and taxation, and Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, who are here to make financial and common sense of all this crazy inflation. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Our episode today is about inflation, and we know a lot about inflation. Uh, I mean, the price of gas at the pumps has soared over the past year or two. It's horrible. Uh, Meat prices everywhere. Prices are rising. Uh, I've brought on two experts on the topic of inflation. One of them is out with a new book. It's called Inflation. His name is Nathan Lewis. He co-authored this book with Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Ames, and the subtitle is What It Is? why it's bad and how to fix it. Joining Nathan is Dick Beauvais. He's the chief financial strategist at Odeon Capital Group. Uh, you'll know him from his many appearances on media, in print. He covers the bank sector, but he has a lot of thoughts on inflation. He's covered it exhaustively over the past year or two, and he was the first or one of the first to call it like it is. He he predicted early last year that we're going to have double-digit inflation in America and we're getting close to that. Dick is going to join us in a moment. I gotta say Nathan one thing I like about your book is that it's accessible and it's plain-spoken. First of all welcome Nathan to the show. Tell us a little bit about your book and how this came about. Why did you write it?
2: Uh, well, I've written a number of books about economics and specifically monetary economics. I actually wrote three books about the gold standard, which was the way that we ran the world until 1971. Very poorly understood today. Um, and I think related to that is a fairly bad understanding of monetary topics in general, including inflation, very core item. Um, and we also, I mean, among Many people made the same observation that uh, central banks became very aggressive in response to COVID. they essentially created a whole lot of money out of nothing out of thin air, bought a whole lot of government bonds essentially uh, indirectly financing very large deficits and it, and and we saw key indicators of inflation react to this and expected in in early 2021, when we thought about writing this book, that there would be an inflation problem going forward. Um, and also not only you know predicting the next 12 months, sorry, uh, CPI numbers or something like that, but also we saw very unhealthy political trends, which we really haven't seen in US history very much, which is instead of the Keynesian notion of kind of you know, managing the macro economy via monetary means, actually kind of drifting into outright deficit financing, which is a whole different thing, and which very often leads to outright hyperinflation, um, which is much more common than people understand. Uh, and we wanted to either uh, maybe do our bit to prevent things from going in that direction, or maybe if we are not able to do that and things actually do on, go in that direction over the next five or 10 years... Uh, to say what the alternatives are and how to fix it.
1: Well, your book sort of defines two kinds of inflation, really. Demand supply, if there's not enough supply, then demand can push up prices. But then there's the other kind, the insidious kind of monetary policy, just massive money printing. We saw that at the US Fed and central banks around the world. Fed balance sheet, $9 trillion, and stimulus spending, COVID spending, and Last year, interestingly enough, the Fed dismissed all of this, except only people like Dick Beauvais saw it coming, led to this inflation of today. So explain all that. Is today's inflation driven by money printing monetary policy? Is that what the book is telling us?
2: Uh, Certainly, that's a core element today. Um, But I think a lot of people understand, like, we talk about inflation, but what the heck are we talking about? Because it seems to be the uh, conversation immediately drifts all over the landscape. We're talking, you know, one minute Vladimir Putin in the next minute, it's federal deficit spending in the next minute, it's Federal Reserve migration or interest rates in the next minute, it's tight job market and supply chain, like all, it's like everything, right? Uh, So we need to calm down a little bit and start to separate these different elements. And we thought that there was really a, a core break Um, between all kinds of elements, which are essentially supply demand related. We all kind of basically understand this. There's there's more demand or less supply and, and prices go up. And this is really not inherently a monetary phenomenon. It's not error of the central bank. It's whatever it is, a shortage of oil or a glut of goods on shelves or something of that sort. And then there's a whole different category, which is really just the central bank. It's just the management or let's say mismanagement of the currency doesn't really have anything to do with some kind of supply demand shortage. And this was one of the big eras of the 1970s, the Fed or Reserve and other central banks were kind of messing up big time. And they blamed oil shortages and running out of everything and limits to growth and all the stuff that all the all the mistakes they made in the 70s. And um, and so there, there, there are these two elements. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's not hard to understand that there are these two categories of things that influence prices. But what you see is, first of all, people who specialize in one kind of tend to ignore the other. They talk, talk all, oh, it's all Vladimir Putin, and they don't really get the f- monetary stuff. Or it's all, you know, everything's a monetary phenomenon. They don't, for some reason, it's obvious, but they can't incorporate this idea of, yes, there are Supply-demand issues as well. And this kind of leads to this massive confusion that we have, which leads to very poor policy responses. So that was, that was our first step. And it's not very hard to understand. But if you listen to what people say, you, you see that they don't do this. They don't clear things up in their mind.
1: Nobody really needs a definition of inflation. The ordinary consumer, the businessman knows it. And I'm reminded of that humorous quip that came apparently out of the Supreme Court many years ago talking about um, pornography. You'll, When you see it, you'll know what it is. The Oxford Dictionaries um, define inflation as a general increase in prices and a fall in the purchasing value of money. So maybe Dick could come in here because Dick, you've looked exhaustively at inflation and and you were early on the scene warning of double digit and soaring inflation this year where do you see inflation today where are we at and just explain to us briefly why you saw this train wreck coming
3: well, well first you know i, I really liked uh, nathan's book uh, in terms of his discussion of uh, the two types of inflation and and the emphasis I think that he puts on, uh, you know, the monetary issues being more important than the supply chain issues because supply chain issues may go away, but monetary issues may stay with us. And and I I think the book does a, a superb job in that area of focusing people where they should be focused. So I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed reading that. Um, my, the reason why I became uh, really concerned about inflation, uh, I guess about two years ago, was I was looking at the federal deficit and the fact that that federal deficit was now being funded uh, by the central bank. In other words, in, in 2020 and 2021, I think 54% of the net increase in the uh, federal uh, deficit was funded by the Federal Reserve. And, you know, to me, uh, that resulted in the printing of a huge amount of money, basically $6 trillion in the periods that I was looking at. And it seemed to me that that was literally 10 times faster than the growth of the economy at the same point in time, which meant that, you know, inflation was absolutely likely. Where I am at the present time is... um, Again, I, I'm, I'm guilty of what Nathan says of focusing on one side and not the other. Uh, I I think that you know the federal deficit has come down you know incredibly. I mean, at one point it was over five trillion. It's now likely to be under one trillion this year, and you know therefore uh, not only has that happened, but foreign sources uh, uh, of money to buy treasuries has increased which it was not, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, So it doesn't appear that the Federal Reserve is going to have to print very much money in the next uh, year or two. And if that's the case, it would strike me that, uh, you know, the supply chain issue is still there, but it'll be solved. uh, And the the rate of inflation is likely to come down. And I'm I'm actually very, very interested in what Nathan thinks of that, that point of view. In terms of, you know, predictions, um my
2: stance now is that, yeah, the Fed, you know, I think the Federal Reserve in particular realized it kind of went overboard in 2020 and has been pretty responsible since then. Now overtly is, is sort of contracting its balance sheet and, and it hasn't done it yet, but will probably roll back this reverse, you know, unwind the reverse repo on the balance sheet and so forth. Um, but the question is what happens going forward? Because we seem to be getting into a recession, stocks are down a lot, we're seeing credit Pressures, you know, all of Wall Street's been trained over the last 30 years since Greenspan era to you know wait for the Fed put because they always cave, right? And then, um, you know, the, the Fed was also very tight in 2019, and then they caved, especially during COVID. As things stand now, I, I tend to agree with Dick, but things change, and we'll just have to see where that goes. Uh, how how much discipline the Federal Reserve and Congress and the entire political system can muster up, and, and this is happening in a context where. We are kind of ignoring it a little bit, but kind of the rest of the world is going over the waterfall. I mean, is Japan kind of looks done, <laughs> which we've been expecting for decades and been wrong all this time, but kind of looks that way to me. And the euro also kind of looking very unhealthy. Even the British pound making new lows that they haven't seen in decades, maybe all-time lows against the dollar. Um, so even though the Fed has been fairly tight recently in recent months, the rest of the world is kind of sinking below the waves, it seems to me.
1: Dick has said inflation has peaked right now, at least based on the current data sets he has. Am I correct there, Dick?
3: Yeah, no, in in my mind, uh, you know, if if in fact that uh, I believe that huge federal deficits result in uh, the central bank being forced to increase the money supply, if that is the seminal cause of inflation, that cause is no longer with us. I don't think. Uh, I don't know how big the war is going to get or what have you, but I don't think it is. And if that's the case, then I think inflation comes down. But in, in, in his book, Nathan brings out a point which I have always been confused about, don't know how to deal with, and I'd, I'd love to get his opinion on, and that's this reverse repo situation. In other words, there's an interplay between the Treasury, the Fed, and the markets in which money goes out one door, comes back in the other door, goes back to the government through the next door, which means that I'm I'm not sure how all of this affects money supply and inflation. You spend a lot of time in the book, Nathan, talking about this. Uh, This reverse repo issue, to me, is a big issue. Why isn't short-term interest rates going up substantially if the Fed is in there borrowing a couple of trillion, uh, you know, sometimes 200 billion a, mo- a week. Uh, wh- why isn't short-term interest rates going up when that happens? Uh, you
2: know, interest rates are kind of interesting because if not for the Fed kind of artificially jacking them up through its interest on overnight reserves, which is a new thing that didn't exist before 2008, it looks like they would kind of be still hovering around zero. That might be sort of the market rate, but but not to get overly complicated, uh, yeah. So the, the reverse repo is is something that has existed for a while, but it was always kind of very small scale, kind of a daily liquidity adjustment. It bloated out to unprecedented levels in 2021. Basically, uh, and basically what it does is the Fed creates money by buying treasury bonds, essentially, then borrows the money back. So, you know, you put one bucket of water in the bathtub and you take a bucket of water out, just kind of how it works through, through a mechanism, which kind of really was never used before. Uh and that's the evidence, like I said, they realized they went overboard. Um, they realized that they had this official policy where they're still expanding the balance sheet. They're still doing you know, monthly bond purchases and they didn't want to look like they were turning the steering wheel very quickly, You know, have just this gradualist approach, but then they're f- kind of fixing things behind the scenes with this reverse repo thing that got very large. It's now about 2 trillion. Uh, and I expected it to be unwound, but it hasn't been unwound yet. It's a very tight situation one of the interesting effects of that is that because it's 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 a, it's a repo the, their treasuries are used as collateral not it's different than selling the bonds back into the market at the market price so in effect they were able to support the treasury market because they were buying it without and but and, and then they were removing the liquidity without selling it right which would push the price down so it'll be interesting to see how that works out that you know if they unwind that it'll be a lot of essentially a lot of treasury selling roughly about 2 trillion of treasury selling which the fed says is going to do um but that'll be something new for the markets that's for sure
3: you know, there's another issue that uh, you know fascinates me because I don't understand it and that is the value of the dollar is going up at the same time inflation is going up that doesn't seem to equate uh, and at the same point in time the value of gold is going down so you know we've got an inflation you know but the dollar is going up in value which is disinflationary and gold is going down in value following the dollar and not looking at the rate of inflation so what what has changed this time what has happened to let that occur I can give you my view. Uh, you know, I come
2: I come from the supply side school. I actually used to work with Jude Winiski, if you remember him. I think you yeah. might. Um, at his company. We have always taken gold as a primary indicator, not necessarily perfect, but pretty good indicator of real currency value. So if it takes more currency to buy an ounce of gold, and gold is kind of this unchanging benchmark, we hope, currency value, that means the value of currency went down. And if it takes fewer dollars to buy an ounce of gold, that means the dollar going up, and then dollars of floating fiat currency. So it goes up and down. And that's what makes the gold price. And so, yes, uh, we have had uh, in recent months, very, you know, at least a stable dollar. It hasn't changed much versus gold. And in recent weeks, a strengthening dollar. And certainly all the foreign exchange rates emphasize this. Uh, But it's also been our our contention that these monetary processes unfold over a period of time. And uh, for example, we had a move of the dollar versus gold from around 1,200 to around 1,800 today, uh, between 2019-2020. Uh, so that's a 50% move. Well, prices didn't, and that implies all things being equal, which they never are, but it's a pretty good guess. 50% increase in the CPI. Well, that doesn't happen all at once. It happens you know, gradually over time. In these eight or 10% a year kind of moves. Uh, so, so, that is, it, it's that adjustment process essentially uh, on the monetary side, the monetary interpretation that we are experiencing now. And this has certainly been, at the very least, accelerated by very real supply demand issues in the economy. There really is supply chain shortages. There really is a used car, was a used car market, very tight market, very, it really has been a very tight labor market, particularly at sort of the lower end uh, where wages went up a lot. So this has kind of accelerated the process, I think. So that's kind of the classic supply side take on things. Uh, so we're basically experiencing today, the devalu- essentially the devaluation of the dollar or depreciation of the dollar, because it wasn't official, that took place in 2019 and 2020 as a result of all this money printing.
3: Yeah, no, but the dollar is up from before they started printing money, right? In other words, the dollar is up from the 96, 97 level, the Dixie, DXY, uh, to the 107 level at the present time, and gold has dropped roughly uh, 300 bucks uh, in value in, in the last, what is it, four or five months. So that that seems counterintuitive to what's going on with inflation. And anyway, the other thought that I was wondering if you'd opine on is, are we involved in a currency war? In other words, you know, how can other nations allow the dollar to continue to rise since all these commodities are sold in dollar prices? They're getting hit twice. They're getting hit with whatever is creating inflation for them. And... They're getting hit because the dollar is going up, and that's the price of all these commodities. So what do they do about it? Do they come and attack the dollar directly with higher interest rates? Do they somehow get their economy going better? What do they do to stop this dollar from going up to protect themselves against higher rates of inflation? For First of all, all the currencies tend to go down together.
2: Um, for example, in the 1970s, everyone had inflation. Today, everyone has inflation, right? Um, because they can't have... if a major currency like the dollar goes down a lot, as it did in the 70s, you can't have the yen go from you know, 200 to the dollar to 20, right? You can't have that. So they, everything kind of has to stay kind of in line. And, and what we had in other, other major dollar depreciation events over the last 50 years, over since 1971, is the dollar has tended to lead on the downside. It's kind of been the leader. And the other currencies have relatively done better. So in the 70s, The value of the German mark and the value of the Japanese yen and the value of the Swiss franc basically doubled against the dollar. So it looked like they were going up. Well, they had inflation too. They weren't going up; they're going down, but they're going down less. Um, My estimate is that the dollar lost ninety percent of its value during the seventies, and these other currencies lost about eighty percent of their value. Um, But now, and so, and so now we're on now we're on the other side, right? Now, now everything. Well, we all compared to twenty eighteen, all the currencies have gone down because they've all had very aggressive central bank policies, and they all have had a. Tendency to want to maintain somewhat stable exchange rates, but the dollar has been the the best. So we're you know the German market in the '70s was the best of the of bad bunch, and now we're the best of a bad bunch. So it looks like it's rising, even though over the longer term, over you know 2018 to today period, we're all we've all gone down somewhat. Okay. All the major currencies.
3: In, in nineteen eighty five, uh, you know, they had this meeting at the Plaza Hotel because all of the countries around the world were screaming uh, that the increase in the value of the dollar was destroying their economies, right? not just their currencies. And, um, you know, are we in a similar situation today? Are we in a situation where these, these, you know, the euro, the, the yen, you know, maybe even the one uh, is, is got to be, are they going to come to Washington and say, you got to stop doing this, you got to stop increasing interest rates, you got to stop, although they just Minuscule uh, started tapering. Uh, are they going to do that because this increase in the dollar is is really harming them? Uh, yeah,
2: exactly. That that's a that's a good point. And that that's kind of my general uh, my general observation is that the, all the the major central banks they can't they don't have that much independence of, of between each other. They they can't have wild changes in exchange rates. Because of all the trade and investment implications, and as a result, they kind of have similar central bank policies. Um, because one one is wildly different than the other, everyone says, "Well, I like that guy, and I don't like that other guy." Right? Right now, the Fed is obviously much tighter than you know, much more responsible. Let's say than the ECB or certainly the Bank of Japan and and Ministry of Finance. And um, that would imply either the Fed has to get more like the ECB, or the ECB has to get more like the Fed. We write for them to maintain some kind of. Currency stability, or, or even turn around the recent trends and have the euro get back to one fifteen or something like that. Um. So now there's a new there's a new pressure on on the Federal Reserve because if the euro keeps declining in value, is essentially what it is, uh, and the Fed doesn't, you know, you're going to end up with the euro at eighty cents. How how can it be out of any other way? And so that's going to, you know, it's a polit- and one more political pressure for the Fed to kind of give up its presently pretty tight stance. Similar to 1985 is a very good example.
1: Let me come in here, Nathan. So I, I'm just listening to what you're saying there. So you're saying there's a certain kind of, even if it's abstract coordination between central banks worldwide, even if there's a, a bit of a lag time.
2: Yeah, because you, you just can't have things get out, you know, wildly out of hand. You just can't have the euro go to three dollars or mm-hmm. you know fifty cents, even if it's <laughs> so all have to kind
1: of go down together yeah or up together whatever my point being that the surge in the dollar you are implying i think is temporary well it doesn't have to be temporary i mean people have been
2: talking for decades about japan is going to end up hyperinflating because they have no other option. well if that happens you know you're going to have at the end of the ten thousand of to the dollar right <laughs> that's what that means but as long as long as things re- you know re- re- remain sort of calm and under control. Yeah, they're going to try to have to coordinate these things.
1: I just wanted to go back to to Dick's point uh, with this, let's say temporary or surging dollar at the moment, you would think that it would impact prices in a very positive way in the US, but then we have this, it might be explained away by supply chain disruptions. A simple example, you go abroad on vacation, your dollar is going much further this summer than it was last year, or you're importing goods you're getting a lot more for your buck. Um, I mean, this is just all, it's just like this big mud wrestling match
2: Mm. between, which is just the way we've done things ever since we gave up fixed currency values in 1971. Um, And it's just kind of always been this way. Uh, And these are the problems of our current monetary regime. Uh, But for the time being, um, the dollar is strengthened compared to what it was two months ago. But in, in a little bit larger picture, I would say from 2021 to the present, We've kind of been in a band between about $1,700 and $1,900 per ounce of gold, and we're at the higher end of that band or lower gold price for now. So it's not obviously a, a surging dollar in that sense. It's more of a you know, dollar is not rising a little, but not that much. And, but the euro and yen and the pound are falling significantly. Yep
1: we're going to get to your policy prescription in the second half of the book and i want to bring dick in on that for his opinions but i want to ask some fundamental questions trying to straighten out in my head we have this soaring national debt 31 trillion 32 in our round and we never hear about it nobody talks about it much in the press anymore i guess it got so boring and yet it's so frightening so there's that one thing there and then we've got the federal reserve um, um, balance sheet nine trillion, you, you use the word, they print this money out of thin air, it's phantom money, right, right, in a sense, in effect, basically. So just just for the layman, if you will, um, they work out, they're, they're tapering at the moment, get rid of this nine trillion. Okay, so has it gone away at that point? That's my first question. And that doesn't impact, obviously, the national debt of 31 32 trillion. And that's uh, for Nathan.
2: Yes, yeah, so I mean uh, to kind of get into some of the details. What hap- What has happened in the last couple of years is Fed created a lot of money. Um, so basically, what happens is it buys a treasury bond and it credits the the seller of the bond with uh, its checking account, just like we all do. But that, are, who are the sellers? Essentially, it goes to the primary dealers. Okay, they, so they're, they're the big banks in Wall Street. But but they don't necessarily own them. They're just kind of they're dealers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, it's the it's a market as a whole, private market. Um, and, and but when they pay for it, they you know the, the money that they pay, they just change the digital thing in their checking account. It comes out of nowhere essentially. Um, that's how it works. Uh, and they were very aggressive about this in 2020. They went up about three trillion, a <laughs> three trillion new dollars they created electronically, but they're real. They're real dollars, um, part of base money. And then in 2021, they kind of said, uh, "Okay, we overdid it," and so they started to suck the money back out for, via this reverse repo thing, which they kind of you know dug out of dustbin. Um, and that has now gotten pretty large. Um, now it's about 2 trillion. So the sensible thing I see going forward, whether they do it or not, I'm not sure, but it's a sensible thing, is that they'll basically unwind this. What they'll, what they'll do is they'll sell off the bonds that they bought earlier to the order of 1.5 or 2 trillion, and they'll wind down the reverse repo thing. Uh, and the net effect will be that the actual, the amount of money on the fed's balance sheet the base money supply will be about flat is my guess that's kind of my base assumption
1: and nothing to do with nobody could confuse that with the national debt of 31 trillion correct
2: not in the and not in the in the first sense it's you know it's just money central bank management's what they do uh, but what it means is that they're going to they're gonna have let's say two trillion of treasury bonds that are now owned by the fed which is kind of like part of the government Mm -hmm. And they're going to they're going to be selling that into the private market. Uh, So it's like the, the, the amount of debt that really exists, the part that's actually owned by the public. And that might be uncomfortable in a number of ways.
0: Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play and learn is amazing. But not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad
2: Council.
1: My guests on this special episode on inflation are the author of a new book on inflation, Nathan Lewis, who is joined by Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group. I pick up the interview first with Nathan Lewis. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Okay, we're going to get to your policy prescription in the latter half of the book. Um, your book's called Inflation. You're, you co-authored the book with Steve Forbes, uh, who was a presidential US presidential candidate and the Republican ticket and Elizabeth Ames and the subtitle is what it is why it's bad and how to fix it what is your policy prescription for inflation as outlined in the book as a, as we mentioned we have supply and demand things which are
2: basically not monetary in character and those are real and, and if you want to solve those you have to solve those at the individual level if there's a housing shortage in certain popular cities well you got to build some houses if there's automobile shortage you got to make some automobiles the fed can't do it all right. <laughs> and some of these Shortages might actually be kind of good because having a you know, low unemployment, well, that's kind of nice, actually. Uh, maybe. Maybe that's not a problem, uh, even if it results in higher wages. Um, but then we have the monetary side. And one of the things you see in the discussion is we relate all these things to the value of the currency. So we say inflation arises from a decline in the value of the currency. So we use the example of Mexico Mexico back in peso in the early 90s was 3 to a dollar. Today, it's about 20 to a dollar. Well, that means your $5 beer, you go to Cancun, used to cost 15 pesos, now it costs 100 pesos. What happened? Well, it's obvious, right? We don't have to really really worry about what the money supply was or any of this stuff. We can kind of just see it, go walk through the airport terminal and look at the exchange rate and we know what's going on. Well, we take that view to basically not just the peso, but all currencies, including the dollar, and take gold as the best indicator of what happened to the value of the currency? And that's something that is, and on the one hand, kind of intuitively obvious, and then on the other hand, very rarely discussed. When do people discuss that? People talk about supply chain shortages. They talk about you know M two did this or that or you know whatever. But they don't talk about what happened to the value of the currency. Um, and if you don't fix that, that means so so that should be the focus. If you if you solve that problem, if you fix that problem, then your monetary inflation problem goes away. Now let me give you an example. In 19, early 1920s, Germany had a terrible hyperinflation. We all know this. you know prices went up galloped, hundreds, thousands, tens millions of percent. And eventually they got to the point in November 1923 they said, "You know what? we can't go on like this. It's ridiculous. And they gotta uh, gotta fix it name is Yalmarshad. And he set him up in an office in the Ministry of Finance. It used to be a broom closet, and it still smelled like cleaning fluid. And, and they gave him a telephone and a secretary. And here he was, guy with the telephone. And his job was to put the German mark back on gold. Actually, And he actually introduced a separate currency, the Brenton mark, based on gold. Um, and on Monday, there was hyperinflation in Germany. And on Friday, Germany's back on gold. And the inflation was over. So- it really didn't have anything to do with, oh, you know, inflationary expectations. I bet they expected hyperinflation to continue on Tuesday, but it didn't. <laughs> and that's all you really got to do, fix it. And, and that was Germany in 1920. And the same thing is true. You see other hyperinflationary situations that get fixed. Estonia like in 1994, uh, Argentina in 1991, uh, Bulgaria in 1997. You stabilize the currency. It's over. You're done. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what people think. You fixed it. So that is always, from the monetary side, the solution. Now it doesn't mean you, know, you Still might have a tight labor market. You still might have a housing shortage. I don't know. Fix that. You know. Go fix it, guy. Uh, but that's always a solution. And in the long term, and that's essentially what Volcker did in the eighties as well. Stabilized the dollar around hundred fifty dollars per ounce of gold. So that's a solution in the short term. And in, in the long term, you want to institutionalize that. And the way you institutionalize that is well, Bulgaria linked its hyperinflationary currency to the euro, nineteen ninety seven. Institutionalized it. Put in a currency board. Worked great. Been flawless. And the way that we in the United States, we can't link the dollar to the dollar. So what do we? What do we do? Well, the only real option is gold, and it's what we used to do, and it actually worked very well. Uh,
1: a footnote here, if you will. You're from the supply side school of economics, um, and of course uh, exemplified by Art Laffer, Steve Forbes, Jack Kemp, Steve Moore, Robert Mundell, a host of others. You believe in low taxes, great for the economy. Some would argue that propelled the economy forward under Reagan. I want to bring Dick in. He has clearly some questions for you.
3: Again, going back to the book, I think you bring out an extraordinarily important point when you talk about the fact that who said that 2% inflation is a good idea? It's, it's a horrible idea. Uh, Volcker said it was a horrible idea. Why the Fed came up with this be- belief that you have to have inflation is absurd. It's obscene. It is very negative for uh, the American public. And I think that, you know, to the degree that people read this book, they ought to read that part of it. And to the degree you talk about the book, that's one of the issues that I would push hardest. I'm I'm not a gold advocate, however. Uh, I I believe that, uh, you know, if you take a look at uh, what Churchill did in the 1920s uh, and and this book by um, Liaquat Ahmed, I don't know if I pronounce his name correctly, but he got a Pulitzer Prize for it, uh, basically indicates that uh, Churchill put, you know, Britain on the gold standard in in 1920 to kill inflation and he basically killed the economy. Um, And, you know, it then resulted in a whole bunch of things. Plus, in the United States, because we were on the gold standard uh, in the late 19th century, we didn't have recessions in 1873, 1883, and 1893. We had depressions. People, thousands of people died in 1873. You know, depression because of uh, you know the inability of uh, the money supply to grow in line with the increase in technology and the growth of the economy. So again, I mean, I, I agree with everything you say about inflation. I'm not, a, I'm not a big advocate of gold.
2: Good, yeah. Those are some interesting points. Uh, I wrote three books about that, so uh, you know, I covered all those topics necessarily want to get into detailed discussion of the situation in the 1890s. but I, I will try to summarize it a little bit. For example, 1873, the dollar was not on the gold standard at the time. it floated from 1861 to 1879. Uh, they did have in, in this in, within this context of a floating currency, Congress did pass a, an act which said they were going to limit the money supply at a certain fixed ratio, which was not the gold standard. That was a Congress's decision because um, they weren't on the gold standard. The um, gold standard can expand any size necessary to accommodate the expansion of the economy. Uh, in fact, between 1775 and 1900, the, under the gold standard, dollar didn't change in value, the money supply, the base money supply of the United States increased by about 160 times along with the expansion of the economy. Very successful. We were the best economy in the world for that century. Uh, I'd call that you know something that works, not something that doesn't work. So anyway, those those are interesting questions, and 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 I'm glad you bring them up because there are answers to them, and we should uh, learn about them. If we are even going to ponder returning to a policy like this, you better like know your stuff, right? Uh, so this is a very good point.
1: And let's uh, let's 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 stop there. Again, another historical footnote for for the layman and for those who follow this stuff. Uh, we came off the gold standard in the U.S. right uh, during the Bretton Woods. Um, agreement 1971. Then, according to your accounts and other accounts, all hell broke loose on the inflation front and the economic front after that. And this was under Nixon. Right. Uh, essentially,
2: what happened is we were on the gold standard. Uh, there was a devaluation. Uh, so basically, from the founding of the United States to 1933, uh, and there were some goofs around the Civil War and World War I. But basically, during that period, the value of the dollar didn't change much. It was roughly $20 per ounce of gold. It was $20 per ounce of gold in the 1790s. It was $20 per ounce of gold in 1930. And then Roosevelt in the middle of the Great Depression said, well, let's devalue it, $35 an ounce of gold. So... You know the, the value of gold. The value of gold didn't go up. The value of the dollar went down. Now it took thirty five of them, just like the Mexican peso went from three to twenty to the dollar. Yeah, same idea. And then it it there was some more bunky business in, in World War II. But basically, from thirty four to seventy one, the value of the dollar was thirty five dollars per ounce of gold. So it was a, it was a fixed value system, and and except for that nineteen thirty three thing, it didn't lose value over time, uh, as ours does today. You know barrel of oil cost three bucks in the 60s. Now it's hundred. What happened? Well, oil is not that much different. It's your money, silly. <laughs> um, and, and then, so that was our experience in the United States for almost two centuries. And then in the 1970s, we left that kind of accidentally, carelessly, not because there was any great problem because the 60s were very prosperous. And the value of the dollar essentially fell by about 90%. Basically, it fell 10 to one is my estimate, went, went from $35 per ounce of gold to 350 roughly in the 80s and 90s, now we're at 1800. <laughs> so, and, and that, if you just think of it that way, you know, what happens when that happens? What would happen to Mexico if they went from 20 to 200 pesos per dollar? That's what happened to us. It's not that hard to understand, you know, if you think of it that way.
1: And your book covers a lot of interesting modern day phenomena, one of them being the modern monetary theory does this essentially make the case that modern monetary theory is is dead it's a total and utter disaster this idea of printing our way out of problems um yes basically yes uh,
2: ideas like modern monetary, modern monetary theory are always around they're always in the background somewhere just like communism or you know many other ideas the question is when does the do these kind of ideas become more broadly accepted by a society it's more of an indicator of Political disintegration or you know bad trends in, in politics and uh, but it, it it's taken place in a context which is which is kind of interesting uh, and which we don't talk a lot about in the book but Dick would know a lot about and I think it's important is that if you look back since two thousand eight it seems like we got away with a lot you now didn't we print a ton of money and you know QE in 2009 and two thousand nine and two thousand ten and and the Fed We criticized the 2% inflation target, but it was actually even a little bit below that level for that period. So all the money printing people say, look, we did it. Works great. Paid for
1: all this cool government giveaway stuff. Let's keep doing it. Well, well, Dick has written about the vast increase in the money supply.
3: You know it, what, what happened. What happened in two thousand eight confused a lot of people, uh, basically because the Fed was, uh, you know, very aggressively stimulating. Uh, certainly with the three QE programs, it's just that the banking system had broken down. In other words, the banks were uh, reducing the asset size, their asset size, and their lending was decreasing. And if uh, banks You know, if you will, banks do print money themselves, and the way they print money is by making loans. So if your banking system is reducing the money supply by shrinking the loans in existence, and your Fed is increasing the money supply, You know what we saw in that period was you kind of evened out and, and you got a false sense of the fact that the Fed could print as much money as they want, the government could borrow as much money as they want, but they're not thinking about the whole system. The whole system, you got to go through the banks and, and the banks. And, and if you take a look at the money supply of the United States, roughly 82% of it, the way they calculate it now is deposits in banks. If deposits in banks, and by the way, deposits in banks have been going down for the last two months. If deposits in banks go down and the Fed is printing money, one is counteracting the other. And that's what happened in that period. But, you know, I'm a a very strong believer that federal deficits are simply no good. And funding those deficits create Distortions, uh, distortions all through the system, and they're extremely bad. And inflation is one of the distortions that they create. So I think that the core is you got to get to the federal deficits, and you got to stop them.
1: As Nathan mentions, the idea of social disorder, inflation creates economic and political chaos in the long term.
2: Yeah. I, actually, I, I want to address that. It was kind of a long topic, but I think there's more to it. Um, yeah, so, we, so we have, we've we had this period where it seems like they got away with it since 2008 with QE1 and two 3 and even more recently because there has been some inflation, but uh, compared to the amount of money they printed in 2020, it's kind of been pretty modest, I think. And there is a, a, a major factor here, which is being more broadly recognized, and that is banks uh, completely changed the regulatory structure in response to the crisis of 2008. Um, they held very, very little cash on their books, uh, essentially deposits at the Federal Reserve, prior to 2008, and they had been dragged, They had been taking this down since the 1950s, because it's more profitable if you if you borrow if you lend this stuff rather than keeping it, you know, non-interest bearing debt or non-interest bearing deposits at the Fed, and that all like blew up, went up in flames in 2008. Uh, so they said, oh, oh, oh we, we can't do this. And not only that, we have to have a regulation because if we, unless we have regulations, the natural competition of management is going to have the same result. So they went to Basel and they, and they passed Basel III, which they passed in November of 2010. And they said, we're going to hold a ton of cash. And they phased this in through 2019, final phase in, in 2019. So banks' requirements to hold money at the Federal Reserve uh, increased steadily through that decade. And yeah, the Federal Reserve had to create it, you know, if, if, if the Federal Reserve required every American to hold $2,000 in $20 bills under their bed in case of emergencies, and those $20 bills didn't exist, we'd have a problem. So they had to print them, they would have to print them. And that's essentially what they did with the banks. And then they went into 2019, actually went the full, with full phase in, they actually had, were short, they had a pretty big shortage compared to where they should have been. And, um, and then they went in 2020, and they had a crisis. And so the Fed did two things. It filled, it kind of resolved the prior shortage at the tw- end of 2019. Uh, but there's, you know, bank to interbank lending rate breached 8% in some situations there, very high. And that absorbed a lot of the money. And then they kind of went overboard and the, and the currency fell. Uh, but the point is that phase is done. So we had this regulation that required banks to hold much, much more money. And we had to create the money so that they could meet the regulation. And they're done. The, the p- tanks are topped up. They have tons of cash. Uh, and the fed realized this, I think in 2021, they didn't realize in 2020, 2019, or they wouldn't have made the error. Uh, and so, so that's what happened. That's like, the you know, the technical side, but then on the political side, all these, all these people in Congress say, Hey, we've been printing money like crazy, I'm getting away with it. This is great. Well, that's gone. You're done. If you print any, if you do that again, it's, you know, there's nowhere for the money to go. There's no reason for it to exist. And that is when the, the, the consequences, you know, if we, if we printed 3 trillion, you know, created $3 trillion and not much happened. We could, if we, I think if we did that again in, you know, similar timeframe, the dollar would collapse. It would go to one-tenth of its value is my yeah. guess.
3: Just to complicate it a little bit more, we don't have a clue as to what the money supply of the United States is. And the reason why we don't have a clue is because of the way the Fed now defines what money is. In other words, if you have $50,000 in a a deposit account in a bank, that's money. If you take that same $50,000 out of the bank and deposit it in an institutional money market fund, it's not money. If you have $50,000 in a bank and all of a sudden you put another 75,000 and so you have 125,000 in the bank. Well, all of a sudden it's not money anymore because the Fed refuses to count money over $100,000 in deposits <laughs> as money. It refuses to count the money in uh, the, uh, if you will, institutional money market funds as money. So you know we're playing, we're playing around with trying to figure out what's going in monetary policy. We don't have the slightest clue as to what the money supply is. And the Fed is not doing anything to let us know what that number is, in my view, because they can't do it. They can't figure it out because the situation gets a lot more complicated. If you look at overnight dollars, if you take a look at, you know, international funds flow. So it's it's really amazing to, to think about how much effort is put on what the Fed is doing with the money supply when nobody knows what the money supply, including the Fed.
2: These are actually very core points. Uh, we, and this is kind of goes beyond our discussion in our book, but but it's important to talk about here. And it, it's actually much more complicated even than that, because dollar is actually an international currency. More, more than half of all the paper dollars, you know, banknotes in existence are, are thought to be outside the United States. Uh, much of the bank reserves held at the Fed are held by foreign subsidiaries. I think it's about 30 40%. Foreign subsidiaries of foreign banks, uh, you know. Deutsche Bank, essentially, and it's being used in the Euro dollar market and funding, you know, trade with Korea or who knows what, it's international currency. Um, domestic statistics don't capture the situation. Um, and a lot of this arises from what I consider some confusion that needs to be cleared up. And I wrote a book about this, Gold and Monetary Polaris, uh, in 2013. So I've been on this for a while. And that is, um, if, you, if you all monetary transaction, what is money? Well, it's transaction, right? You go to the store, you get a burger, you give them the $20 bill. One goes one way, one goes the other way. That's what money is, could be a gold coin. All monetary transactions in the economy take place with base money, the stuff that's on the Federal Reserve balance sheet. Uh, And let me give you an example. So you go buy your burger with a credit card. Your bank is, your, your credit card provider is Citibank and the burger company's bank is Bank of America. Well, what happens? Well, Citibank pays Bank of America the cost of the burger, using its bank reserves at the Fed through the daily clearing system, the HEH system. That's on the Fed's balance sheet. The only thing that transfers is that base money on the Fed's balance sheet from Bank of America to, to City or the other way around, I guess. <laughs> uh, that's the real money. Um, you can't transfer your, your savings account. You can't transfer your checking account. Your checking account is just a number, right? All your checking account is it's account 777386 at Bank of America, that says that Bank of America owes you so much money. That's what it is, it, that has no existence beyond that. And you, and sometimes you can transfer checking account, like if there's a divorce or a company merger or something like that, but that's the only time when it happens. So in the book, and I wrote in 2013, you have to split in your mind what is essentially credit, essentially banking, it's loans. Loans are contracts. They do not change hands, <laughs> they don't. And then there's the money, which is exclusively on the Fed's balance sheet. Um, now, this is like you know, some you could argue about these tiny topics for years. But I'll i have a very important observation: is that you can maintain a central bank has total control of over, over a currency. You can maintain a currency like the Bulgarian lev with a currency board fixed to the value of the euro uh, indefinitely. It doesn't matter what banks do. All the banks in Bulgaria can go bust. <laughs> Who cares? The LEV is still going to be worth the euro. Uh, Or they could have some like fantastic expansion. Your lending rates could be up 20%. Doesn't matter. You know, the LEV is still pegged to the euro. Uh, So central banks actually have total control over the currencies. The banking, you know, banking system is important to the broader macro economy, but it's actually not that important to the currency.
1: We're almost at of time, um, Nathan and Dick, just want to kind of summarize everything and get your final thoughts. But Nathan, if we understand you correctly, you would be in favor of going back to the gold standard in the U.S. Uh, yes, eventually. I think we, I think we have to
2: set some some framework. Uh, one of the major issues we have now is we don't really quite have the institutional expertise to do it properly. Um, That's what happened Then in the 60s, in the 70s, is everyone is in support of the Bretton Woods system. It just seemed to fall apart by itself because basically people didn't know what they are doing. And people are hesitant to say, well, do we know what we're doing today? And they say, "Eh, why make a new system that's just going to blow up because the people don't know how to fly the plane, right? You can give them a plane.
1: In other words, what you're trying to say, just to interrupt here, Nathan, we don't know what the potential unintended consequences could be because we're in a whole different generation era. A lot has changed in monetary and financial system and infrastructure, correct?
2: No, not really. What, I, what I'm saying is that we can all sit around and agree that the best way to get from New York to Los Angeles is to get on a plane, Beats walking. But if you can't find a guy who can fly the plane, if you get a guy and he crashes the plane in the middle of Arizona, it's not the best way anymore, it's yeah. better to walk. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, to some degree, that's where we are. We, we can agree, theoretically, gold standard system is a great system as it was for almost two centuries of American history. But a lot of people are hesitant and, and a lot of this hesitation amounts to, we don't want to get a guy to crash the plane because we did that yeah. in 71. <laughs> and in the meantime, is inflation staying around in your view? As, as Dick mentioned, you know the 2% inflation target, uh, it's not so much about the CPI in my opinion, but unquestionably, there is a long-term tendency for floating fiat currencies that are managed by central bankers, you kind of make stuff up as they go along. There's a long-term tendency for them to decline in value over time. Now it takes 50 times more dollars to buy an ounce of gold than it did in in the 1960s. And during those 50 years, there never was a central bank guy that ever said, oh, I love inflation and I want the dollar's value to go down. That never happened. But the dollar
1: is only worth two cents today. So, so. currency—we have a devaluing <laughs> currency, and but so expect more of the same. <laughs> yeah, right. So, and Dick, your final thoughts on inflation and everything we've been talking about here?
3: Well, no, I, I fully agree with the concept that if inflation continues, it destroys—you uh, know—the society, it destroys uh, much the economy, it destroys much more than simply—you uh, know—the financial system. So, I think it's bad. I think it's wrong, and I think that. Uh, I believe the Milton Friedman view that if you grow the money supply in line with the growth in the economy and the population, you you can avoid inflation. But I don't see any government which has the courage to do that. So who knows where it's going?
1: Well, it's been a fascinating, stimulating, thought-provoking interview with both of you. Nathan Lewis, the new book you're out with is Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and how to fix it. And you co-authored it with Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Ames. You'll catch Dick Beauvais on Odeon Capital Conversations with Matt van Alstyne, which I host. And you'll see him on media and all the, all the cable channels talking and opining about banking and the economy and inflation. And gentlemen, Dick and Nathan, thank you for being my guests. And thank you. Thank you.
0: You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973 529 4699. That's 973 529 4699. 973 529 4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's Burndesk B Y R N E Desk at gmail.com. dot com. at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.